Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Na'amaduhu wa nusalli. Ala Rasulihi al-Kareem amma ba'ad. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. And we are continuing in Thaxton's edition of Fihi Ma Fihi. We are on Discourse number 3, into Discourse number 3, page 13. A story is told. A story is told of Mawlana Bahauddin. So Bahauddin is most likely Rumi's father. One day, his companions found him totally absorbed in contemplation. When the hour for prayer came, some of his disciples cried out to the Maulana that it was time to pray. The Maulana paid no attention to what they said. They rose and began their prayers. Two disciples, however, remained in attendance on their master and did not rise to pray. One of the disciples who were at prayer, a man named Khwajagi, Khwajagi. Khwajagi saw clearly with his inner eye that all those who were at prayer including the prayer leader, had their backs to the Qibla, while those two who had remained in the master's company were facing the Qibla. Right, try to make sense of this. <coughs> so, so Molana is, is sitting there, and complete absorption essentially means complete focus on Allah Ta'ala, right? Nothing in dunya is present, nothing of yourself is present, it's complete focus on Allah Ta'ala, right? And then they're like, okay, time to pray. And they all go and pray. He doesn't. Okay. And then two of his students are with, uh, with him. One of them is Khwajaji. And, and then Khwajaji sees, has this vision that those people who got up to pray were praying, but their backs were towards the Qibla. But then those who stayed were facing the Qibla. Right, try to make sense of this. What could be possible meanings? Or let's let's take it this way. Let's take it all piece by piece. So the people who got up to pray, mm-hmm. did they do anything wrong? Well, they were trying to do what they thought was right, but okay. their Molana was more like knowledgeable about what was happening. Okay. He was actually facing the right direction. Okay. But they thought they knew what was right, so they went and did their own thing. Mm-hmm. However, they were following like the rules that mm-hmm. they learned. Mm-hmm. But I guess sometimes rules might be bent a little bit. Oh. Yeah. So, so what happens, one of the challenges when you're growing in your iman is the challenge of directing your fiqh to Allah. Okay. And so when you're going from Islam to Iman to Ihsan, when you're in Islam, that's usually the realm of fiqh. <clears throat> and there you are fulfilling the physical actions. Okay. Like the mechanics of Salah, the mechanics of Siyam, so forth and so on. Right? Mechanics of Zakah. And, and you do them because you're supposed to. Right? But as you're getting closer to Allah through Iman, through Ihsan, you are realizing, okay, my prayer is to be focused on Allah. Okay? But sometimes you may have to go through this transition where you've gotten used to going all through the motions of prayer, but you're so used to it that you're used to also getting distracted from Allah. Okay? 
And so thus, you're doing what Allah is telling you to do, but it's such a routine that's actually distracting you from Allah. Good. And so, from a fiqh perspective, they probably did everything right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and of course, they're facing Makkah, mm-hmm. but their hearts are not facing the Qibla. And though that's the essential point we're making here. So then it's okay to break the fifth rules for the purpose of strengthening your iman. I mean, you can say that. So, like, um, with, with fiqh, there's the interpretation of the ayat and hadith, that's the usul. Mm-hmm. And then there's the maqasid, which is the higher aims. Okay. So, an example is that suppose, uh, you know, my common example, suppose you have someone who's just become Muslim. Let's say they became Muslim on the day before Ramadan. Are you going to tell them, okay, starting tomorrow, you have to fast, make all your prayers, and even do taraweeh, right? If you did that, they're probably not going to last as a Muslim, right? So what you're probably going to tell them is, okay, well, what I would tell them is, okay, this is really soon. Um, you're probably full of zeal want to do it all, but maybe give yourself a goal on how many to do, okay? Or maybe this Ramadan, you know you're supposed to do them this Ramadan, just be in the company of people who are fasting. See what I'm saying? Because you want them to remain connected to Allah Ta'ala in the long haul. You know? And I've witnessed that happen. You know, I had this, this student who, through her co-worker, she became Muslim literally like two or three days before Ramadan. And they told her, now you have to fast and make all your prayers. And I don't think she's Muslim anymore. Right? And, and so that is in a way saying what you're saying. Right? Here I'm saying it's a little bit different. Because <clears throat> it doesn't say he didn't pray later on, right? It's just that when they all got up to pray, he didn't pray. He didn't get up yet, right? So he may have gotten up to pray later, mm-hmm. within the prayer time. Okay. But in that moment, uh, he was not yet getting up for prayer, mm-hmm. right? And there might be some other subtle points here that the students are sort of overriding the teacher, right? If the students are there, they know that the teacher prays. Yeah. Uh, but they're probably bypassing him. And that's probably also built into this too. Like a lesson of humility then? Yeah, it could be humility as well, which is also related to where is your heart facing. Since the master had passed beyond the state of ego consciousness and became lost to himself, consumed in the light of God, as is the meaning of the prophetic saying, die before you die. He had then become the light of God, and whoever turns his back on the light of God to face a wall has assuredly turned his back to the Qibla because the light is the soul of the Qibla. Now if people face the Kaaba because the Prophet designated it as the direction of prayer for the whole world, it is more fitting for him to be the direction of prayer since it was for his sake that the Kaaba became the Qibla. Okay. So what does this paragraph mean? So let's take this piece by piece. What is the first part of the paragraph saying? So what is it saying about the master? What has he done? He, he's like with God, basically. Mm-hmm. Connected. Yeah. So this is Ihsan, right? Some people use the term Fana. How would you translate Fana? Fana? Yeah, it's, uh, it's basically like in this, in this uh, outlook, it's like 
self-annihilation or complete annihilation. Oh. Meaning you no longer have a self-consciousness. So a way to think about this, when you're praying and you're getting distracted, whether you're thinking about homework or you're thinking about friends, whatever's going on, you're actually focusing on yourself, right? Because you're focusing on your own world. Yeah. So the goal is to remove your focus on yourself and replace that with focus on Allah Ta'ala. So even when you're focused on the world, you're actually focused on yourself. And so that is one of the parts of this journey of Islam, is to remove this focus on yourself. And so, like in the other discussion, in the ethics class, we were discussing that, you know, in this paradigm, the intention to do something just to avoid hell is a selfish intention, but it's still 100% good. The intention to do something just to go to paradise is selfish, but it's 100% good. But the best is to be closer to Allah. So, interesting point with that. So, the yes. same day that we had that class, I was talking to somebody, and she was telling me about how she doesn't pray anymore because she's like, the only reason I pray, when I do pray, is to avoid the hellfire. And I'm like, oh, look, I found somebody, like, someone that we were talking there about. It is. And then she's Marshall. like, the only reason I do it is to avoid the hellfire, but I don't pray anymore. And then I was like, and then she was like, uh, comparing it to working out. She's like, the only reason I would work out so that I don't become obese, but I don't work out anymore. And I'm like, because fear of punishment is not a good enough motivator. And I think it's even proven in psychology mm -hmm. classes. Like, it's better to get someone to do something through reward rather than mm -hmm. punishment. Okay. So I think, I think I still stand. Sure. Yeah, well, fair, 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 fair <laughs> enough. I'm still saying it's a good intention. Uh, the point that we're seeing with her is that uh, that as a motivation will not last. But I'm saying, but even think within a particular moment, you know, if I do this, it's a sin, I'll get in trouble, so I better not do it, right? Can I sustain a whole life only trying to avoid hell? Probably not. Uh, and I'd also suggest, can I sustain a whole life only seeking to go to paradise? Probably not, right? If it's either or, okay. uh, I don't think that's, that would be human. Okay, so yeah. moderation, well, I'm just saying that at different moments in your day, you're going to have different things motivating you. So I'm saying avoiding, avoiding hell is still valid. Okay? But if the point is this is the only way, I don't think that's going to work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah. Okay. So how do we get to that? Um, <clears throat> oh, so, so when you reach this, this state of ihsan, it's all that's in your consciousness is that Allah Ta'ala, is Allah Ta'ala. And so this is as though you know, the mirror of your heart is polished. And it's as though the light of Allah is coming through you. Sort of like what we saw at the beginning of this book. You know, the scholar who, who's dedicating themselves to, to Allah. And Allah Ta'ala makes them a vessel to bring goodness to everyone else. And the scholar might not even realize it. Right? That's sort of like the waliyah is. So when we're saying die before you die... That's basically saying eliminate yourself before your physical death. And usually the term we'll use is ego, eliminate your ego. A better term would be eliminate yourself of your sense of self or your consciousness of self or your focus on yourself before you physically die. Good. And so... <clears throat> so Hmm? Do they talk about how? Well, that's essentially what this whole book is about. That's, that's what the whole Sufi way is about. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in another way, that's what the whole Ihya or Lumuddin is about, and that's 40 volumes. 
So, so then it says, okay, he had become the light of God. Whoever turns his back in the light of God to face a wall has assuredly turned his back to the Qibla, because the light is the soul of the Qibla. So if I'm facing the Kaaba, mm-hmm. and in my mind I'm facing, a, um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm just l- putting my face in front of a bunch of bricks, okay, that's different in my consciousness than facing Allah Ta'ala. Make sense? Yeah, you said butt in your head. You're, you're I mean, so, so <clears throat> if I'm in front of the Kaaba, uh-huh. naturally I'm going to face the Kaaba when I'm praying. Yeah. Okay. But am I facing the Kaaba when, I, uh, when I'm praying just because that's what I'm supposed to do? Or because that brings me closer to Allah? Those are two different consciousnesses. Okay. Right. And so the goal is in the way you live your life to try to make your whole life facing Allah Ta'ala. But the starting point of that is your acts of worship to make those facing Allah Ta'ala. It's easier when you think of, of, of Siyam, right? Because when you're fasting and you're by yourself, you're not going to break your fast because, uh, you know, you have this consciousness about it, right? And you may still have the consciousness that, okay, I don't want to break my fast because, you know, then it's not going to count and I'm going to get in trouble on the Day of Judgment, Right? And the level you want to get to is this brings pleasure for whatever that means to Allah, and that's why I'm going to keep my fast, right? Because this fasting is for me. So that type of consciousness you try to have in, in, in your namaz, right? That's what we're talking about here. And then that's also the type of consciousness you have, you try to have with people of that type of consciousness. So one of the purposes, so one of the consequences of being a person who is absorbed in Allah Ta'ala is that it helps people around you be absorbed in Allah Ta'ala. Just like if you're a person of very, very strong character, it'll compel people around you to have strong character. Does it make sense? Yeah. Like all those... Hadith that talk about those who you spend time with. Yeah. Yeah. All right. The Prophet once admonished. The Prophet once admonished one of his friends, saying, I summoned you. Why did you not come? Because I was at prayer. Was it not I who summoned you? I am helpless, he said. It is good, said the Prophet, for you to acknowledge yourself to be helpless at all times, to see yourself helpless in times of strength, even as in times of weakness, because over your strength lies another. Okay. So I think this is Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, and the ayah is either in Surah Al-Anfal or Surah Tawbah. I want to say it's in Surah Al-Anfal, which is the ayah that, you know, if, if the Prophet is calling you to that which gives you life, you know, answer his call or something like that, right? Uh, we can find the ayah. And so what's taking place? Abdullah ibn Mas'ud is praying. The Prophet calls him, and then this exactly thing happens. He finishes his prayer, then he goes to the Prophet, peace be upon him. And the Prophet says, well, didn't I call you? He says, yeah, but I was praying. He says, but, you know, I'm the one who called you. And so think about this. Obedience to the prophet is an obligation. Mm-hmm. When you're praying, you're an obligation to Allah. When you're praying, you're praying to Allah. Most likely, he's not praying a farth, right? Because the prophet is calling him. Okay. Yeah. Most likely. Okay. Okay. Um, and so, so, but it may or may not change even if it is a farth. But, so this person is praying to Allah, 
the higher priority is to obey the Prophet, peace be upon him. Okay. So if the Prophet calls you, you break your prayer and you answer his call. Especially if he knows that you're praying, okay, and he's calling you, then it's going to be for a reason. Right? And so that's one issue. Because if my goal is to serve Allah Ta'ala, then I'll have those moments where it seems like I'm doing something in service to Allah, but then I might have to override that with a higher service, a higher obligation to Allah. You look like you're about to say something. I was going to say, so what's an example of that nowadays? Yeah, I don't know what would be, I don't know if there's anything comparable to that nowadays, because that's the Prophet, peace be upon him. Right? So like back then, there were examples when you would possibly break the fifth rules, like what you would expect. But now, like, is this still well, I mean, I mean, you definitely have, I mean, so back then, the, the easiest example of that is, is Omar, um, you know, putting a moratorium on cutting off people's hands, right? So there's a famine, mm-hmm. people are stealing, they're stealing bread, and so Omar announces, may Allah be pleased with him, yeah, you are not supposed to be stealing, but because we're not providing for you, we can't cut off your hand, Right? So that would be, again, looking at the higher purposes as well. And so if you have a famine, the end result is going to be everyone's hands are going to be cut off otherwise. Yeah. And so, so, uh, so what's taking place here, number one, is just that issue, uh, which is that your goal is to always be serving Allah. And you might be thinking that you're doing the thing that is most in service to Allah. In this case, he's praying. Mm-hmm. And yet there's something even more in service to Allah. And this, we serve Allah according to Allah. Mm-hmm. That's submission. Okay. You don't serve Allah by overriding Allah. This is one of the challenges of Islamic reform. A lot of times in Islamic reform, what people are unintentionally, and sometimes intentionally doing, but unintentionally doing, is that they're trying to make Islam fit into their lives. As opposed to trying to make, figure out how to make it so that Islam makes it as easy as possible for us in our lives to turn to Allah. That's different, right? And so if you're trying to make Islam fit into your lives or your outlook, then you're basically, without realizing, you're trying to make Allah submit to you. Another example of that would be, you know, these, uh, the, the militants who believe that they are serving Allah by way of killing and all that. Okay? They're overriding Allah. One way of overriding Allah is by picking and choosing what eyes you're going to follow. That's not submission. Or that's not submission to Allah, we should say. That's the first part of this. The second part of this is the acknowledgement of being helpless. Okay. So think back to the beginning part of this book where we said, you know, there's different, different people have different doors that, um, that they can walk through to get closer to Allah. Right? Some people need to hit rock bottom, and then they're ready to start walking to Allah. But other people might hit rock bottom, and then they fall into despair, like those prisoners. Okay? Some people might need to see a miracle. Okay? Um, but one key way to turn to Allah is to acknowledge that you're helpless. So here it says, the Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, it is good, said the Prophet, peace be upon him, for you to acknowledge yourself to be helpless at all times. To see yourself helpless in times of strength and 
as even in times of weakness, because over your strength lies another strength. I mean, the strength of Allah, at the very least. And so, and another way to, to define that is that if you feel helpless, then what do you do? What would you do if you felt helpless? You'd ask somebody else for Exactly, right? So if I can acknowledge that I'm helpless, then that should compel me to ask for help. Thus, I acknowledge that I have need. Okay, and then you turn to Allah. So when you come to Allah walking, He comes to you running. One way to think about that is you are coming to Allah asking for help, and He's running to you to give you help. Make sense? And so this is one of the big, big doorways. It's to be, uh, is to really feel need for Allah, or to feel need in any capacity, and then direct that to Allah. And this is one of the lessons, then, of why we have to eat and why we have to drink and all that. Because when you feel thirsty, you're feeling need. It's a reminder every day. When you're feeling hungry, you're feeling need. When you're feeling lonely, you're feeling need. And these are all doorways, then, that have opened up for you to get closer to Allah. At all times and in all conditions, you are subject to God's will. You are not two halves such that at times you are in control and at other times not. Keep his strength in view and always realize that you yourself are helpless, not in control, impotent, wretched. If even lions, tigers, and crocodiles are helpless and quake before him, what then of puny mankind? The heavens and the earth are all helpless and dominated by his law. He is a mighty king. His light is not like the light of the sun and the moon, in spite of whose existence things remain as they are. No, when his light shines without being screened, neither the heavens remain nor the earth, neither the sun nor the moon, save that king, no one remains. Okay, so that's pretty straightforward, right? Uh, but to add to this, think about the moment when Musa is saying to Allah, can I see you? Mm-hmm. Okay? That conversation is probably taking place in the daytime. Okay? So the light from the sun is beaming upon him in the desert, okay? and he can handle that. But then, then that tiny ray of light of divine light knocks him out. And that ray of light is aimed at the mountain. It's not even aimed at him. He's just seeing it go by him. And that knocks him out. It's too much for him to take. I told you about like what happens when I'm looking at a picture of a constellation, right? Have we talked about that? Um, So I first noticed this in a class in cosmology, which is models of the universe. The teacher put a giant, you know, full wall size projection of probably the Milky Way on the screen. Mm-hmm. Or some other galaxy. It probably wasn't the Milky Way, but some galaxy. And <clears throat> I was trying to comprehend, number one, the size of it. Just like when we talked about the pale blue dot. Yeah, right? yeah I remember that. Yeah. And then, so I'm trying to comprehend the size of the galaxy compared to us. Okay. And at the same time, how is this so beautiful? Because okay, those look beautiful. And it's literally like more than my brain can take. To the point that while we were in this class, I was beginning to faint. Okay? Because it was too much for me. Okay? And so we're seeing Musa al Islam, he could probably handle that easily. Yeah. Uh, but this tiny ray of divine light going right past him to the mountain, he passes out. Okay? Even though he's getting the light from the sun, if I'm standing in the desert... Like, so you've been in the desert, right? Yes. 
And so, like, I'm standing in the desert. The sunlight is too blaring. I start sweating so hard, uh, you know, out of nowhere that salt is getting in my eyes. Like, I don't think I've ever sweat like that, the way I've sweat in the desert. It's like salt, almost purely salt. Um, and he's handling that, right? But this was too much. So, so that is a taste of the majesty of Allah, the grandeur of Allah. So it says, at all times and in all conditions, you are subject to God's will. Intellectually, we all know that, right? Yeah, we all know that. But a key point is you're not two halves, some, so that sometimes you're in control, other times you're not. You're always subjected to his control. So keep his strength in view and always realize that you yourself are helpless, not in control, impotent, wretched. So part of the process of walking through this door is to acknowledge, to really internalize the fact that you are helpless, you are vulnerable. And you are especially vulnerable before Allah. So a metaphor that you'll often find that we will also find in this book is, <clears throat> you know, like, let's say you're in the forest and you light a candle. What's going to happen? The light up the area around you. Okay, yeah, but what will happen in terms of bugs? Oh, they'll go away? Well, bugs will actually start coming to you. But the smoke will come out. Well, the smoke will probably, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> But at first, at least, the, the bugs are probably going to start. When you go camping, they say you should light a fire and put on fire to get all the bugs away. Oh, probably in the ground. Yeah. But I think that'll also still attract flies. Okay. In any case, the point I'm making is, okay, forget, <laughs> it, forget it being a, a, a campfire. For, pretend it's just a flashlight, right? Okay, okay. flashlight. Bugs okay. are <laughs> <laughs> and so, And with the bugs, it's like they can't not come. There's a, a funny moment. I forgot which movie it is. It's an old Pixar movie. It might be A Bug's Life where they're in some backyard, and there's that purple light people you, people would hang in their backyards. And then the little flies like, oh, it's so pretty. Yeah, it's, it's like, like pretty, I can't it. stop, I can't stop. Exactly. And that's, uh, so the point is that, <clears throat> uh, that's what we also want to try to develop in our relationship with Allah. I can't not get closer to Him. But part of that is for me to truly internalize that I am so vulnerable at every moment that my state is one of vulnerability. And he is beyond colossal in terms of strength. So imagine you're standing at the shore and you see this tsunami coming towards you. Yeah. And it's coming for you for you coming toward you super fast. And now at one moment, it's literally right above you. There's, there's this like 10 second period where you're watching this tsunami climbing right above you. And you're at the shore of the beach. How would you feel in that moment? Overwhelmed. Yeah. And so we're saying that tsunami is tiny compared to Allah. Right? And, but that's our existence constantly. We are literally always at that shore with this giant tsunami. Okay? And so, the more you can have that vulnerability, that's half of it, but the other half is that the only strength is Allah. Okay. So think about when you get intimidated, whatever it is. Like, I cannot, like, I always have difficulty public speaking. It's, I've given thousands upon... you have difficulty public speaking? Yeah, I've done thousands upon thousands upon thousands of, of talks. Mashallah, may Allah tell accept them all. 
and probably almost every single one of those has been difficult for me. Okay. The whole week leading up to it has been difficult. Okay. Um, and, and then standing there has been difficult. Okay. I'm still a little bit better. It used to be that I'd start puking. Like, or I'd, wanted, I'd start gagging. No joke, yeah. And then standing up there, and then eventually, that's probably, probably part of the reasons I crack so many jokes, is just to calm my own nerves, right? And, and so what I'm saying is that, what is it that is, uh, I don't know if I've still been able to identify why. It used to be that I was always afraid of some Desi uncle who's going to start yelling at me, right? But I'm, not even, I'm now a Desi uncle, so that stuff doesn't frighten me anymore. Sometimes I know it is fear that, okay, I'm going to say something wrong, okay? And it's going to stay with all of them. Right, especially if it's like a Juma Chutpah or something. Like, I have to give Juma in about an hour, and that's still constantly on my mind. Right? So much so that it's hard for me to even prepare. Like, that's how, how tense and paralyzed I get. Okay? And so, so, but the point is that uh, part of my mind is also that, Ya Allah, I'm in your hands. Okay? So you have a vulnerability, but then it also is a type of confidence. Okay? Meaning... Yafallah, if you want to humiliate me, I can't do anything about it. If you want to elevate me, I can't do anything about it. I'm in your hands. So it's also a type of peace. See what I'm saying? So if you can appreciate your complete vulnerability in the presence of Allah's strength, then it's actually a place of peace. Because you're saying, okay, even if I, if I embarrass myself, I'm in your hands, Allah. Make sense? Mm-hmm. And so thus, yeah, when you look at animals or when you look at, you know, moons and planets floating in space, we just automatically feel like, it, like there's some sense of peace here. Except when the animals are chasing each other to eat each other, right? Uh, or we'll hear about galaxies crashing into each other. Usually even the default we think of when we think of nature and the default we think of when we think of space is something peaceful. Yeah. yeah. A king once said to a dervish, when you enjoy glory and proximity at God's court, make mention of me. When I am in that presence of the dervish and am exposed to the radiance of that sun of beauty, I am unable to make mention of myself, much less of you. Okay, so that's pretty straightforward, right? In light of what we've been talking about. Why is the king saying that to the dervish? Because he feels like he has a close relationship. Yeah, so it's kind of like saying, remember me in your prayers. Yeah. And so you're close to Allah, so please make sure you remember me in your prayers. And he's saying, I don't even remember myself. And so that means at that point, his whole existence has become a dua. Okay. Meaning, usually, like, you know, when we're going on Hajj, we ask everyone, okay, you know, send me any of your duas and stuff like that, right? Uh, and that assumes I have the consciousness to make those duas. This person, this dervish, and again, notice it's the Amid and the, and, the, and the scholar, this dervish has basically reached the point where my whole existence is just in Allah's hands, right? I lost sense of myself. So du'a is when you're in communication with Allah, but you can reach a point where your whole being is communication to Allah. Nonetheless, when God has chosen one of his servants and caused him to be absorbed into himself, if anyone should grab hold of his skirt and make a request of God, God will grant that request without the mystic so much as mentioning it to God. Yeah, what do you think about that? Wait. What? If anyone should grab hold of his skirt and make a request of God, God will mm-hmm. grant that request. Mm-hmm. 
So like you don't need to ask people to make like. So, so you have this person, okay, so the metaphor here, and it might be literal, is that you have this person who is, a, uh, who is completely absorbent in Allah And you're coming to that person tugging at their coat. Uh-huh. Can you make this prayer for me? Uh-huh. Okay. Whether or not the mystic makes the prayer for you, Allah is accepting your prayer. Because there's a few things happening. One is the desire for you to have your prayer answered. And then the acknowledgement that this is a person close to Allah. So that's also one of the metaphors of the kiswa of the Kaaba. It's like you're hanging on the coat of the Kaaba. Asking for your prayer to be answered. So it's it's a state of humility. See what I'm saying? Like we say, hanging on the coattails of someone or riding on the coattails of someone else, that's very similar. This is one of the important aspects of, of like the, the saint, the wali, the wali Allah, is that they, the, just by their presence, are a reminder of Allah. The story is told of a king who had a subject he held in the highest esteem. When that man was about to set out for the king's palace, all those who had requests to make would give him letters to present to the king, and he would put them in a pouch. When he came into the king's presence and the king's radiant beauty shone over him, he would fall unconscious at the king's feet. The king would put his hand lovingly into the man's pouch, saying, What does the subject of mine who is absorbed, who is absorbed by my beauty have? He would draw out the letters and note approval on the backs, and then replace them in the pouch. Thus, without being presented, all the requests were granted. Not one was ever denied. In fact, the petitioners were given more than they asked. However, out of the hundreds of requests made by other subjects who retained consciousness and were able to present petitions to the king on behalf of others, only rarely were any granted. Okay, so what's going on here? So, like, he is saying that it is good to ask the righteous people to make dua for you because... Mm -hmm. Because that person is so loved by Allah. So, like, mm-hmm. when you do ask for that, then he will accept. Mm-hmm. But then he says of the other hundreds of requests made that not all of those would mm-hmm. be granted because mm-hmm. they're just... Half-hearted. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about that? I mean, I think it motivates people to get closer to Allah and mm-hmm. to get closer to people who are close to Allah. Yeah. And those are relationships, and so much of the deen is about so much of the deen is about connections, right? And so, a way to do that. What's a way for me to become in awe of Allah? Look at His creation. Become in awe of Allah by way of His creation. And so, the more you are becoming in awe of Allah, the more you're appreciating your insignificance. So, I don't know if you saw the photo I just posted on Facebook yesterday. So, there's a photo of Earth from the rings of Saturn. So, there's the satellite, I forgot which one. It's, uh, it's around the rings of Saturn. So, they took a photo of Earth. And it's literally like this little white dot. Even smaller than the other one. Yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah. 
you appreciate your insignificance, the grandeur of everything else, the wonder of everything else, and you look at all these things as the creation of Allah. Okay. And then you, uh, then you turn to, uh, and then that is a very strong doorway to walk through in your relationship with Allah. So another way we're saying a way to develop sincerity is half of it is by way of your understanding of your humility, your helplessness, and the other half is by Allah's greatness. So with a human being, if I have a servant who's coming to me, you know, just in awe of me, that could potentially increase my arrogance. Okay? But part of the point here, the king is appreciating the humility and the dedication of the servant. So if I'm giving such humility to Allah, I mean, Allah's not going to become arrogant. Allah is the biggest of the big. And so this, the key point is, what am I like before Allah? So, I don't know if it's related, but literally just now I started getting dizzy again. Okay. Yeah, like literally physically dizzy right now. Yeah. All right. Any other thoughts? You like this book, huh? I do. Yeah, alhamdulillah. All right, so next time, inshallah, we will do discourse number four. All right, and then after that, we'll have to, or in the, along that time, we'll also figure out what to do during the summertime, inshallah. All right. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashhadu illa ilaha illa anta nastakhiruk natubi ilayk wa akhirat da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.